I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Oh, happy day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I have a very special episode for you today at the Philadelphia Film Festival. I saw this really cool documentary called The First Step. Uh, It tells the story of the CNN correspondent Van Jones and his efforts at trying to uh, pass a bill called the First Step Bill that would create a prison reform for nonviolent criminals. Uh, it's really inspiring stuff, and it's a really great movie. And the director of the film, Brandon Kramer, uh, sat down with me, and we talked about his movie, and we have a little fun at the end playing some Movie 20 questions. So I'm going to pop an ad over here so I can get some of that sweet money. And then when we come back, it's my interview with Brandon Kramer, director of The First Step. All right. All right. Welcome to the show, the writer, director, well, yeah, writer and director of The First Step, uh, Brandon Kramer. Welcome. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Um, your film came into my purview as part of the Philadelphia Film Festival. And um, I wonder if you can just give us a little background on what the film is and, and you know, your, your uh, connection to it. Yeah, sure. The first step is a, uh, it's an independent feature documentary that follows uh, an incredible story about Van Jones, who's a, for those who don't know Van, he's a civil rights activist, he's on CNN, and a group of activists who are trying to uh, pass a landmark criminal justice reform bill called the First Step Act. Um, It follows really a very improbable journey of uh, a group of people trying to thread the needle and work between conservatives and liberals to come together on the issue of addiction and criminal justice reform uh, under the Trump era, under the peak divisiveness and partisanship of that time period. And, um, you know, it's a story that explores both the successes and opportunities of what happens when people come together across political and racial and geographic divides. And it also looks really honestly at the consequences of that. This is not uh, a a rosy, peachy story of bipartisanship. It's a story that looks very honestly at where bipartisanship is really challenging and difficult and, um, and the perils of it. I, I I like that you say it like that because one of the things I was so impressed with about the movie is that um, now I was actually unfamiliar with Van Jones, uh, short of just like you know hearing a dismissive comment here and there, and I was so impressed watching the film with his interest in reaching across the aisle. Um, but what I like about it is that the resistance that he faces on either side of the aisle, as characterized in your film isn't really put forth as necessarily enemies of his so much as the film kind of gives time to hear the motivations behind, you know, the the people who say, hey, we need to have crime and punishment, you know, boom, the laws are what they are. And then you have, you know, the 
you know, folks that are more on the left saying, hey, this bill is great, but it's not comprehensive enough. And I love that both of those pieces of resistance were kind of given a fair shake. And um, I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it's like in a divisive time to be putting together such an open-minded movie. Yeah, it was incredibly challenging. And really, you know, this movie took five years to make. And I would say giving that kind of space and agency to the multitude of perspectives in the film is what made it take so long in a lot of respects. Um, you know, I made the film or my brother and I made the film because we are very, very concerned about the divisions in this country and feel that it's critical to be having conversations around how we figure out some way to work across these lines to make progress. Van, we knew Van for several years and Van and his team were one of the few groups, not the only, but one of the few groups who were attempting to do this kind of bridge building work and try to engage. I didn't make the film, we didn't make the film trying to prom directly promote or lift up or say what Van and his team is doing is the right thing or the exact way to build bridges in this country. I believe in what Van is trying to do for sure. And I think there's incredible lessons and a beautiful roadmap to be taken from what he attempted to do. But what I was most interested in is documenting that story and being able to um, capture an example of both his attempts and his team's attempts of engaging across the aisle and the consequences and uh, outcomes of that action on people who didn't want to engage across the aisle and mm -hmm. how that affected other leaders and other movements on both sides of the aisle. And with the hope that we could have a, a conversation around what bridge building looks like, what are the opportunities for working across the aisle and what are the limitations? Um, I, wanted to make, I wanted to tell a story about bridge building that invited audiences to the table who were more skeptical or resistant to the idea of reaching across the aisle and engaging. Because to be honest, that's the only way we're actually going to enter a space of finding compromise and working together is if the, the base of people interested in doing that kind of work expands beyond the people that already believe in it right now. I think that's a smart move with a film like this, because like I always use my my dad as a metric for politics because he is like full on hardcore right wing. Everything is Trump and it's, you know, and it drives me nuts, but it is what it is. But there's so many things like there's so many things that I'd love to show him that he would say, like, I could never show him a Michael Moore movie. It's never going to reach him. And I enjoy a lot of Michael Moore's movies, but so often I find myself watching it and going, he's telling me what I know. He's telling me, you know, he's telling his base audience what we already agree with. Where is the needle being moved here? And whereas I would imagine someone like my dad, if I mention Van Jones, is going to scoff. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if I sat him down and showed him the first step, it's not so loaded one way or another that that he would feel that he's an outsider engaging with this. I think it is very inviting to people like that. And uh, and I just, I appreciate that because I think the message comes clear without being so editorialized that it might shut out an audience. Yeah, you know, we just, we just showed the film in 25 film festivals across the country. Some, you know, in deep red states, you know, we were in Kansas, we were in Arkansas, 
um, you know, and playing to the very conservative audience who sat down, engaged with the film, felt that based on what they were seeing, they could trust it. They could, you know, they saw people that they believe in and support. There's, you know, Republican senators in this film, you know, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, Jared Kushner, that in the context of this story, it's not showing, you know, it's showing them as working on this bill that, you know, is helping a lot of people. And on the same token, I was just at a film festival with Pete White, who's featured in the film, who's an incredible activist in Los Angeles, who was vehemently opposed to the First Step Act and, um, you know, believes in fighting for more comprehensive criminal justice reform. And so uh, the goal here was always to create a space for those different audience members to be able to sit down and engage with it. And the great thing about film which is different than, you know, just political debate and, you know, having arguments and conversation is that it's an emotional journey that you're taking people on. So it can disarm you in a really important way that might be able to open people up to other perspectives and views. So if somebody who's, you know, doesn't believe in the first step back, doesn't believe in incremental change is more you know, looking at sweeping reforms like like Patrice Colors is represented in the film, um, you know, they can watch the film and feel like, okay, there are people that they, that speak their language, that support their views that they can connect with, but then they also can see, have a better understanding or have some empathy for what Van and his team are trying to do. They might not agree with it, but they might gain some understanding and insight into it mm -hmm. that goes beyond tweets and headlines that they're typically given and then vice versa, you know, people who love Van and don't understand why people would ever, uh, you know, not reach across the aisle, would ever not support, you know, compromise and bridge building. Maybe they walk out of the movie and they're like, okay, well, I can see why somebody like Patrice or Pete who have been fighting on the front lines of this issue their whole lives and have seen the destruction that the criminal justice system has done to their communities, why they might not be okay with a bill that doesn't go as far as it needs to to address some of these systemic issues. Mm -hmm. I think that um, it's a, how should I put it? It's the kind of thing where I thought I knew what I was getting into watching the movie. Um, I firmly believe in criminal justice reform and I really did think that it was going to be a, a movie that just, you know, tells me what I need to hear, but, the, uh, you know, tells me what I already know or want to hear. I've always found that things that I find myself cautious of or afraid of, the cure for that is information. And so often in the political spectrum, we see someone, we see them as an enemy, we see what their goals are and we say, that doesn't drive me at all. But then the second you open that window up to their motivation and you try to understand where they're coming from and say, oh, this might be an act that I see as evil or impure, but when I look at the motivation behind it, it's driven by an emotion or, or just a place of care that I can get behind. And I think once we find those common grounds of motivation, it really is just a matter of banging out the methodology. And so watching your film as, you know, I think I side sort of on the, you know, I, I would like the bill to be as comprehensive as possible. At the same time, I watch it and go, okay, but do we want nothing at all if it gets, and so watching, you know, Van have to kind of uh, uh, navigate that, it was a really great way of getting that information to seeing the motivations of people that are either supportive or resistance to it. 
and I think that watching this movie is a is a great template for future political conversation of trying to view someone. And we always say, uh, you know, we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. And I think it was a great window into kind of seeing an example of judging others by their intentions and then figuring out the actions. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, like, I'm glad, I'm glad that that was your experience watching the film because that was my experience. You know, this is not a scripted film. There's no, this film started with my brother and I had a relationship with Van Jones and his team. We knew that they were attempting to work across the aisle and engage with an administration that I would say most people on the left were resisting and not engaging. Mm -hmm. We just felt like that would be a critical story to tell. And my journey going through the film as a, you know, observational filmmaker was, I was going through my own complicated emotions. You know, I didn't know stepping foot into the Trump White House, you know, stepping foot into some of these difficult conversations between activists in the front lines of South Central Los Angeles and West Virginia, what, how I was feeling, you know, there were times where I was, you know, checking myself, you know, is, is sitting, is sitting in this White House in the company of people and leaders who I think are doing very destructive things, like, where do I stand on these issues? And I kept going back and forth and vacillating and not really sure how I felt. And what I tried to do with this film is create uh, the space to allow audiences to have the room to make up their own conclusions because uh, it's not for the, not because I was trying to usurp my responsibility as an author, but because I felt like that was my responsibility as an author of this work to provide that kind of space in a way that I think a lot of political uh, media out there doesn't do it. It's a, a little more or it's a lot more, you know, frankly, uh, you know, agenda serving and sort of saying, you know, this is right, this is, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. There's no real villains in this film, mm -hmm. uh, you know, except, you know, maybe the Senator Tom Cotton's or Jeff Sessions mm -hmm. of the world who, you know, believe that there's an under-incarceration problem in America and are, you know, there, there are some people on the far, far right that there is, you know, nearly impossible to create a deeply, you know, empathetic, humanizing experience with them because they're advancing policies that are just so damaging. Mm. But for the, you know, reasonable range of people on both sides of the aisle, I, I, my hope is that it creates a, you know, open space to have a kind of conversation that frankly, I think is that it's becoming more and more narrow. And mm -hmm. we're experiencing that in the distribution and sort of sharing of the film as people keep coming up to us and saying, oh my God, I haven't seen I haven't seen a story like this that sort of gives that kind of space. Um, so it's been it's been powerful. When you say that that kind of window of people that I, I don't want to say in the center, but that aren't at the two extremes, that is the largest block of people, and they get the smallest amount of press. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that that a more reasonable, you know, like a more reasoned attitude gets the clicks that that the general, you know, news media requires in order to stay alive. You know, it's just part of the business. But yeah, it's so often I hear, you know, just hardcore right, hardcore left, just screaming. 
And the bulk of the people in the middle that I think are so capable of getting action done aren't heard and don't really have, a, you know, a voice. And I think that they are represented rather well in your movie. It shows the broad expanse of opinions, but it also shows, you know, at the end of the day, we are Americans. You know, that's the team that we're on, no matter how we we divide it up. And so I, as someone who I, I often get very frustrated and cynical towards politics, I left your movie with a sense of hope, just saying, hey, look, it actually can be done. You know, and things that that, you know, we can set a goal for one thing and get another thing, but getting anything at all, it seems to be a victory at this point. It was just wonderful to see. That, that was, I mean, that was my experience making the film also. I, you know, I'm from, I grew, was born in DC, grew up in the DC area. I've felt often through my life that this belief that I think is widespread, that nothing ever happens in Washington, that the city is gridlocked by special interests, by partisan politics, that you can't build relationships across the aisle. I don't know. Working on this film, I sat in the offices of U.S. senators on the Republican side and the Democratic side of the aisle, sometimes with the camera, sometimes not. I saw, you know, 300 page pieces of legislation being put on the table, red ink pens coming out, like lines being drawn. I, you know, debate, fierce debates happening, compromises being made, and then a piece of legislation becoming law. And then I've personally spent time with some of the tens of thousands of people who have been released from federal prison, who were facing another 10, 20, 30 years behind bars for first time nonviolent drug offenses. And now they're back with their families. So it's like these <laughs> reaching across the aisle, engaging does matter. It dramatically has an impact on people's lives. I've seen it up close. And, um, and I walked away from, the, the, from making the film with a newfound sense of hope that, you know, if we're able to sort of let some of these guards down, not abandon our principles and what's important to us, but try to listen and try to find where there is common ground, a lot can happen and people's lives are at stake. Uh, just that image that you have of uh, that you've put in my head of people arguing over a bill and red inking it and all that that's something that my cynical brain just cannot can barely picture but I guess you're saying that it's true I, I feel like that's inspiring to me to that shows that there is some care there as opposed to just empty you know just the suits in Washington you know and uh, oh that's wonderful to hear there's a uh, a sequence I guess towards the middle of the film where this group of activists that you've that you've brought together, um, some of them are white Southerners, definitely Trump country. Uh, there's one young woman who I, I think came from from the West Coast, but obviously from a more urban environment, and she and this older white gentleman sort of. Uh, they kind of get in, they, they sort of get into it about how he's supporting a candidate that does not validate, validate her existence as a black queer woman. And, um, but at the same time, I love that she doesn't just dismiss him because she sees the pain of, you come from a family that has addiction issues, you come from a place. And so seeing this care together, at the end of that conversation, a conversation that in my world, would end in people screaming at one another sort of ends in like a silent but tacit agreement of all right well that's the information we have let's table that let's get to get to work and we'll discuss that later and I get the sense that that conversation between the two of them is not over yet and when it is over 
I get the sense that that they're both going to be better and closer and more willing to cooperate for it. Uh, just a very moving, moving segment of the film, watching them kind of hash it out. I'm glad you mentioned that scene. It's probably my favorite scene in the whole film. Um, it's one of those scenes where you look at it in the edit and you're like, there's no way this is not making it into the finished film. Um, it's what yeah, stuck with I, me the most, for sure. It, it, it's it's such a beautiful moment because for, for all the reasons you said, and um, it's unresolved, which is how these kind of moments are. And um, the, the sort of tense, but tender and also awkward energy in that exchange, I think says a lot, not just about where Doug and Tyler are coming from, but what they did in that car is extraordinary in my opinion. They, mm -hmm. they took a step that most people in this country are not taking, which is you know, allowing each other the space to listen. And I think you know, it would be so easy to write Doug off for a lot of liberal audiences. And, you know, he's a Trump supporter, you know, and he's, he's, he's backing up his support for this man who has caused all this damage to my community. But, you know, in the scene prior, you were just with Tylo listening to the fact that his son died as a result of his addiction and how, you know, Doug, Doug's working every single day to try to get people out of addiction and provide resources and support for the people of West Virginia. This is a great father. This is a great husband. This is a great member of his community, you know. And so uh, I think it was, you know, for Tylo to sit with that dichotomy of he made this vote, but he's also doing these things that I really respect and admire and vice versa for Doug, you know, to uh, to meet Tylo and have this moment of empathy and connection. I think even though Doug's politic, Doug probably votes in similar ways to how he did before and Tylo votes in similar ways to how she did before, I'm just, you know, guessing. Um, I think the experience of building that relationship has left both of them profoundly changed. Mm -hmm. I know Doug, I was just with Doug, uh, Doug came to several of the film festivals with me and- oh, cool. you know, he refers to the LA folks as family. You know, they're they're part of his extended family, I mean, and vice versa in LA. And so, um, you know, there's not a changed vote, but there is not the sense of vitriol and hatred toward just assuming that all people who made a vote in a different direction are awful, terrible people. That you know. That those those I think those barriers came down a lot, and I think it's a model for how you know we all can build relationships. Whether it's you know Dan with your dad, or not to, you know, or you know, we just got away from thank we think we just got through Thanksgiving. I think every single person that's probably listening to this has an uncle, a cousin, uh, you know, a parent that is voting in a different direction, and those conversations are really hard. Agreed. And, and I think it's, you know, Doug's probably going to go into the voting booth and before he pulls that lever, he's going to have that thought, you know, whether he continues to vote the same way, he's definitely going to have that thought about what his vote means to people that don't look like him, sound like him or have lives like him, but are just as human, just as American and just as in need of, you know, robust change in the way that we do things overall and, and vice versa. I'm, I'm sorry, what was her name again? Tylo. 
Tylo and, and vice versa. Like, I, I think that, you know, like you said, in the future, if she runs into another Doug, might not be so quick to be like, ah, screw this guy, you know? And, and I think that that's such a knee-jerk reaction that that I think I'll, almost everybody gets into in politics is as soon as that disagreement comes up, it's, ah, you're just one of those. And then you can dismiss it. And I think any delay on that dismissiveness is going to be, you know, that's that little snowflake that becomes a snowball and really, you know, gets some momentum. Um, I, I like that delay before judgment. And I, there's just so many examples of it in your film that are just very, very moving. And, and you know, it sounds Pollyanna and it sounds like, oh, you know, like, that's a sweet idea, like getting to hear each other and listen. But I don't know what we do if we don't find <laughs> some way to interrupt this really dangerous cycle that we're, you know, that we're heading toward. I, you know, every day I'm like reading something in, in the news that's, you know, uh, it, yeah, I, it, it's really concerning to me uh, that, you know, it's, it's concerning to me, you know, policies and, and uh, you know, actions that are being taken at all, at all levels of the government um, in, in, in different capacities, but it's, it's really concerning to me that uh, the conversation continues to grow more and more divisive and uh, it it's, it's feels more and more like we're uh, enemies, mm-hmm. not, not political opponents and, you know, people that we need to build relationships and sort of convince and sway on different issues and, and try to, you know, debate and argue our way through this. It, it feels increasingly like we're living in two different countries. So I think what Tylo and Doug did there in that car ride, while it seems simple, could be some medicine for how we can rebuild some sense of a national fabric uh, to, to, and humanity to the country, which can allow all these different issues that we need to make progress on, whether it's climate change, gun control, you know, any of these things uh, uh, allow them to move forward in a productive way. I always find I get frustrated because it feels like everybody's fighting in the foothills of a giant mountain that we need to climb. And there's so much that can be done if we can just dissolve that fight in the foothills to get to the top of that mountain. And I think that films like The First Step are, are very helpful with that. Um, looking through your filmography, you are you are a documentary filmmaker. Are you at all interested in moving away from documentaries or are you going to stick in this world as you as you continue to make films? Yeah, it's funny you ask. I'm actually right now working on developing, my brother and I are working on developing our uh, our first narrative film together as a Good next on. venture. Um, you know, I love docs and I will always, you know, be a documentary filmmaker and probably make more docs and support other documentary filmmakers. So it's not a, it's not a pivot away from that world, but um, I think I am just interested in how being able to, you know, write a screenplay, really, you know, develop characters on the front end, take some of, I think what it is, is, you know, I, when I went to film school, I wanted to be a narrative filmmaker at the beginning, but I felt that I didn't have enough understanding of people, of culture, of communities, of just the way the world works to be able to write and direct 
what felt like authentic and meaningful representations of people in, in a narrative film. And I feel like after directing docs for 12 years, not just this film, but my last film, City of Trees, other short films, I feel like I have a good enough understanding uh, to really be able to write and develop characters that I think could be you know, authentically represented and, and, and portrayed. Uh, I feel like I have more to say about the world now, just being, you know, somebody mm -hmm. in my mid thirties and not my early twenties. And, um, and, and, you know, directing a cinema verite doc is, is, is a beautiful process, but it's really painfully hard in that, you know, you're following the story, not knowing where it's going to go. You film 400 hours of footage over the course of three and a half years of filming you know, trying to follow a through line, but also you wind up filming in all sorts of directions that the movie doesn't wind up being in the film. And then you have to go through this brutal two-year process of taking 400 hours and rediscovering what the story is in the edit mm -hmm. and breaking that down into 89 minutes. And it's an amazing journey. It's really tough and hard, sleepless nights, so much stress. Uh, making you got to be crazy to make a movie. Got to be a little. You got to be a little <laughs> crazy. And so, honestly, just the idea of being able to write the film on the front end and not the back end. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, is, that's interesting. Is is really liberating to me. Also, you know, just on a personal note, like I'm a I'm a romantic. Like I love watching rom coms. I love watching romance films, love stories. And so, you know, working on political focused docs. Uh, you know, I believe in what these stories are about to my core and I want to continue to push these themes forward, but I'm just interested in how to uh, take some of these ideas and themes and put them into a love story. I, I just find myself watching, uh, you know, love stories and romance films a lot. And so it's a genre I feel passionate about. Are you, have you ever seen a movie, I believe it's called 180 Beats Per Minute? No. Highly recommend if you're into it. I believe it's a French movie and it, takes place during the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And it is about a group of activists, all of different statuses of HIV, AIDS, or not having anything at all, that are basically just working to, I mean, the same thing that happened in America, working to just be acknowledged at all as a community that needs some sort of help to get through this. But at the center of it is a really, really, just deeply affecting romance. And so it ends up being a film that is quite political and has some really good messaging in it, but has stuck with me just because I was so enamored with the romance. And so that's something that I feel like might be in, in your wheelhouse and, and worth checking out. Absolutely. Thanks. Highly, I'll, highly recommend. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, I mean, it's like, whether it's romantic relationships or family relationships, you know, these are the, these kind of really intimate connections that we have with people in our lives that's what's occupying like most of our uh you know thoughts and mind sort of and so situating a story in in those you know spaces of intimacy of family relationships i think is is a really ripe place to to take an audience through something you know powerful and meaningful so everybody's also, got a family and nobody's family is normal so it's a good place to to do it yeah exactly exactly um i guess uh i have any more questions here for you 
I guess I'll just ask you the basic one that I like to ask all my guests. And if you want to keep it in that genre or not, what's your favorite movie? Oh, man. <laughs> or we can even word it this way. You don't have to have a favorite movie, but what is that movie that it's a rainy day, you're bummed out, and you need something to pick you up that you always go back to? Well, since we're talking about, I, I don't know if this is my favorite movie, but since we're talking about, um, you know, love stories, <laughs> which is not exactly what the first step at, what the first step is, um, I'm, I'm, I love the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Ooh. Before Midnight trilogy. Those are a go-to. I've seen those films each probably, you know, five to 10 times. Right on. They take on different meanings at different points in my life. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just, they just sort of, the way they handle time, the way they ha handle a relationship being formed, the way they handle just, you know, two people trying to navigate and struggle with you know really deep questions oh yeah lives and um i've just it's always been a, a it's always had a, a soft spot in my in my uh in my heart so that's in the narrative world in the doc world uh i don't know the first movie that comes to mind is the overnighters oh yeah really just beautiful story you know about an incredible character that you know, just is unafraid to dive into this character's strengths and where he's, you know, having a huge impact on hundreds of people's lives, but also his, you know, challenges and struggles. And um, I think in many ways, what Jesse did with that film was an inspiration to me in how to uh, capture not just Van, but all the characters and films that I've, I've worked on and, and that, you know, watching a character seeing where they're shining and seeing where they're you know really at their best but also being able to see where they make mistakes where they fall on their face where they struggle is where you create a really deeply human connection between audiences and a protagonist and so to do that in a documentary is extremely hard mm. um, to do it with a public figure um, or a person in a position of leadership like they did in that film with, with the pastor Jay is incredibly hard. And I've tried to do that with Van Jones in, in our film and just creating as intimate and honest and, and multidimensional of a portrait of this, of this leader and activist as I could. I think it was a great success. I, uh, I went into it really just knowing him as a face, as an avatar, and I came out of your film really respecting him and respecting his methods and just, you know, kind of respecting what he was going for. Um, for our listeners, is there is there any uh, future plans for the first step? Are we just on a festival thing now? Are they going to have an opportunity to see this? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone who's tuning in, um, we just wrapped a 25-city film festival tour across the country. Um, I, my brother and I literally just ran across the country and had these incredible screenings uh, in, in all these festivals. And um, for the year, um, we're done with screenings, but in 2022, we're going to be doing uh, an impact campaign with the film and having uh, community-based screenings of the film in different uh, grassroots settings. We're going to be screening the film in educational and K through 12 environments. And, and at some point during 2022, the film will also be available for streaming and um, in, 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 on other platforms as well. So 
Um, if you're interested in the film, you should follow us on social media. That's the best way just to stay engaged and you'll get the updates on when it will be screening in a city by you. So that's First Step Movie on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. And the website for the film is thefirststep.com. And, you know, follow us on all those different platforms. And then uh, in early 2022, we'll be announcing, you know, how you can see the film either in person in those in the city that you're living in or streaming um, through, you know, a platform that's accessible. Right on. I will put all that information in the show notes. So everybody who's listening, keep an eye on that. Uh, this is definitely a film that you're going to want to check out. And it's definitely a movement that you're going to want to support. Um, so before we wrap it up, would you like to do a round of movie 20 questions? Yes. I'm okay. so excited. Are you familiar with how this works? Uh, I think I've, it's been a few years since I've done it, but I, th I think I'll pick it up. Yeah, but go ahead. The rules are as follows. You got 20 questions. Yes or no variety. And within those 20 questions, you will have to guess the movie that I'm thinking of. And so I'm going to pick, I've got a list here. I'm going to pick, uh, you know, pretty popular stuff because I, I always hate playing this with a guest. And then they're like, I've never seen that weird slasher movie from 62. And it's like, <laughs> all right, well, anyway. so um, we'll go with a classic. All right, you're up. Okay. Uh, yes or no? Is the movie is the movie narrative? Is it a narrative film? Yes, it is. Is it based on a true story? Um, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it, that's that's the that's the toughest question to answer because no, it's not based on a true story, but it is based on some sort of actual happenings you'll know exactly what that means when i tell you this is unhelpful is it a drama uh no okay is it a comedy no okay is it an action film i would say to a degree yes but we're not thinking in the realms of like the rock it's not anything like that so okay i'll call um, it i'll call it an adventure film i'll give you that okay is it is it made in my lifetime i was born in 1987 uh no it was not okay uh got plenty of questions left oh my god this is hard this is really hard um is it an american film yes it is very very much so is it a classic film that you would see in film school 150 percent. yes absolutely okay is it the godfather it is not The Godfather, but that's a really good guess. I don't know, I, I don't know if that's quite an adventure movie, but sure, yeah. it's an adventure. Uh, you for, know, it's uh, an adventure. It's an emotional adventure. Yeah, um, Fredo definitely uh, has a story there. Okay. Um, oh, God. Okay. Uh, is it a story that is about a war? Uh, no, it is not about a war. Okay. But I'll throw this in there. Within the text of the movie, there is a war story. 
Okay. And it's an iconic one. Oh my God. Okay. Um, We're halfway there. You got 10 left. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you need to throw in the towel because you run out of questions, there's no oh, shame in okay. that either. <laughs> it's okay. Um, is the movie black and white? No. Okay, so it's not Citizen Kane. I think it's was... not Citizen Kane. Um, is the movie made in the 1960s? Uh, no. And since we're getting up there, I will say this. It's the 70s. Okay. Um, okay. Um, this is so tricky. Uh, God. You still got eight left, so you can play it loose if you gotta. Okay. You never know when you're gonna hit that, hit that sweet one. <laughs> uh, okay, hold on. Hold on, I'm seeking help. One second. All good. I'm not totally cheating, but I am. Um, it's all good. Okay. You're you're allowed to Google. You can do whatever you want, but yeah. Only questions for me. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully this is not. Um, okay. Is it a Steven Spielberg film? It is indeed a Steven Spielberg film. <laughs> <laughs> okay um hold on now you gotta know <laughs> i know um hold on okay is it does it have a th thriller element to it yeah absolutely is it Jaws? It is indeed Jaws. Good work. Very nice. Right. <laughs> that was tricky. <laughs> That's why it's tough when you say, is it based on a true story? Like, no, it's based on a book, but apparently that book was inspired by some sort of shark attack. But how it's like... Questions, how many questions did I use to get there? 15. Not bad. I was not expecting to be able to get this. Okay, good. You nailed it. The last guy that I did, he got RoboCop in 16. So you're the current leader. <laughs> you're definitely the current i also leader, just yeah. rewatched jaws actually pretty recently so oh right on good I mean, it's a classic it's a classic well brandon thank you so much for uh joining us on the show and um yeah i will uh connect everybody to your work and hopefully they will seek it out but uh from us here at movie movie best of luck with the first step thank you dan really appreciate the conversation and uh really appreciate all the work you're doing yeah well thank you right back at you and that was our interview with Brandon Kramer, director of The First Step. I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, I hope that you guys reach out and check out all the cool stuff that he's doing. Like I said on the show, I'm going to put all of that in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. And then hopefully next year you will be able to see it as well. And I really think you should. It's a, it's a really, really good movie. But here's the thing. Still got some time. A couple more minutes on this podcast. You know, it's been lean, so I want to fatten it up a little bit. So all we're going to do right now, we're chilling out. I'm going to go through my notebook with some of the stuff that I've been watching recently. And I'm going to blather on about it to you because I got a big ego and that shit's not a problem for me. So, uh, and, I, and I think the embargo is lifted on a couple of the things that I want to talk about. But if it's not, just shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Don't say anything. Don't be a fucking dork. Just be cool. 
And if you're really cool, you can check out I Like to Movie Movie at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things. So make sure you like, follow, smash that like button, smash the follow button, drop an elbow on it, break it, explode it, do whatever you want, but do it on someone else's phone so that you don't break your phone. Break someone else's phone while subscribing to I Like to Movie Movie. That's what I'm telling you to do. I'm not telling you to do that, though. I'm not liable for stupid statements like that. Just a little high. So let's see. Oh, so one of the coolest things that I watched recently was New York Ninja. The uh, I think it's Vinegar Syndrome just put out this uh, <laughs> this crazy ass movie. So in like I guess it's the seven. No, I guess it's the eighties. We'll say what eighty two. I could probably find this out. This guy named is it Joseph Liu? Well, he's like a karate guy, and like he's got a decent body of work. He's a dude that that does some things but he's not like like he's no bruce lee he's more of a robin Shao. like he's that that level which i hope i'm pronouncing uh probably pro properly but they did this re-release of new york ninja when i say re-release that's completely incorrect because this is the first release of the movie it was made years ago and then for some reason or another it just kind of didn't happen and the reels disappeared, and they were rotting away, and bums were pissing on them, and people were throwing things at them, and just, it, it was a very, very ugly sight, but Vinegar Syndrome swooped in, and uh, recut the movie, but, oh yeah, also, the movie had no sound, so when the people were talking, nothing was coming out of their mouths, so they just kind of had to figure it out. So the director of this movie, uh, so the original director is John Liu, uh, who is also the star, but Curtis Spieler, Spiler, I don't know. Twitter doesn't have an audio option, or maybe it does. I don't know. I'm not keeping up. Curtis Spiler is the guy who cut it together, and he had to write a new script for it based on what he saw. Cut something together that's, like, at all coherent. And then they got voice actors to react to all of the characters. They got uh, this band Voyager to come in and do an all-new score. And it's, like, crazy, like, 80s synth-pop score. And honestly, if I didn't know that it was a reassembly of a movie that wasn't completed, I wouldn't know. Because it's remarkably complete. It's really a lot of fun. It's like perfect B-movie stuff. And I hope that I am being correct when I say that Vinegar Syndrome did it. Because I am at max capacity when it comes to memorizing all of the labels whose sales are draining me of my... All of my money. But I just, I want it all so bad. I want it. And I show power in my life and control by obtaining the things that I want. This is a healthy mindset, and it's something that I do, thank fuck, just by buying movies. Because it's a dark impulse. Whew, we don't want to go there. So what have I watched? Oh yeah, so New York Ninja, really good. Highly recommend. And the package that it comes with has like a lot of cool like physical stuff. There's a booklet with a lot of good essays and all that. And it's just a fascinating thing. And it's one of those things that exists just by sheer brute force power of people loving movies. As I'm recording this, I'm watching the battery pack on my my hand-me-down uh, iMac. Is that what it's called? No, it's a MacBook. And uh, my battery's at 33%, but the, it's not charging right now. And the new charger doesn't arrive in the mail until Monday. And I don't even know if that's the actual problem. I'm just kind of troubleshooting. So I've got to get all of the work on this podcast done with 33% of battery. Now, I started the interview earlier tonight at, I think, 76%. And 
I'm still maintaining. I think I'm going to beat the clock. Because if I have to switch over to the $130 Lenovo that I bought because I thought I could design a website with it, uh, it's probably going to catch fire. It's a piece of shit. And I like that. This is not a shot at Lenovo either. This is just a shot at this Lenovo. But it's really just me taking out my own deficiencies on a fucking computer because I just didn't want to spend more than $130 on a computer. What the fuck was I thinking? That I've spent, you know, like $1,000 on Blu-rays. So, you know, so it goes. I watched Spencer. We all know. Okay, Stu, we're all fans here on this show. But uh, this is the first time that despite, I think, her you know, really strong acting abilities, she's definitely still a celebrity, and she's somebody that you see, and she's somebody whose face is recognizable. You know, it's it's hard sometimes to not see Tom Cruise when you're watching Tom Cruise, and Kristen Stewart is, like, definitely at that level of celebrity. This is, this is the, maybe not Tom Cruise level of celebrity, until she throws herself out of a fucking plane or something like that maniac. Uh, this is one of the first times that I, I legit thought it was her. Now, granted, I don't have a relationship with Princess Diana besides, like, a couple pictures and foggy memories of my mom being shocked at her death. And, um, oh, and I do remember, I think it was fourth grade, we had to dress up as a historical figure that we did, like, a book report on their biography. And there was a girl in my class named Diana that did Diana, and my teacher was was tickled i was uh i believe i was jim abbott that was my character is that who i'm thinking of i know that i i know that i went as a pioneering black baseball player um and I, but i did it fully white i mean even at even at 10 i knew that that was that was not something that you, that you do it's, it's a bad thing but um oh i was so innocent though i was just so inspired by jim abbott he was a guy that faced adversity to play. And what sucks is that I'm not even remembering his name right now. And I feel like that's just not cool. No, it's not Jim Abbott. Fuck, I really blew that. But it wasn't Jackie Robinson. Um, you know what? I'm digging a hole and I'm getting deeper and deeper in it. And it's just not, it's not going to end well. But either way, uh, Stuart disappears entirely into Diana and not... Not a Diana that I have any full reference point for. I just kept forgetting it was her. I didn't go, oh, she's Diana. I was just like, oh, who's this actress? Then I'd remember that it's star of Charlie's Angels, Kristen Stewart. Missing Kristen or Kirsten? I'm like not talking right now. Saw House. Oh, well, Spencer's very good. I will say that. And the only thing that I can really come away with it is that like the whole royal family thing is just dorky as shit. They're a bunch of dorks. Just total nerds. House of Gucci is one of the most enjoyable movies I've seen in a long time. It is a complete and total mess, but if it was any sharper, it it wouldn't work. So, like, I could criticize it for being sloppy, for everybody's accents being all over the place, for it being just way too long. But I wouldn't do that, because it just works. It works. It's some magical alchemy that comes together. And everybody's great. Gaga's great. Driver's great. Fucking Leto is great, even though he's doing he's doing the most <laughs> the most ridiculous performance. And I do agree with the the chorus of movie fans saying, you know, why are you putting Jared Leto in makeup to play this when you can get a guy that actually looks like like it's really a, it's very good makeup, but it's quite a transformation when so many actors just look like that guy. But then he goes and does something like this. 
and knocks it out of the park. By far my favorite performance in the film. So I, I you know, he seems like a real weirdo, but uh, the works, the work is good. The work is good. Uh, Pacino's in it. There's a, a what's his name? Jeremy Irons is in it, and Jeremy Irons does this thing that. So they're all doing an Italian accent, and as I dig myself further into a hole of saying terrible things, I'm just going to warn you that my Italian accent is not going to be great. It is going to be Mario-based, and it's just the way things have to be at this moment. But, um, I wish I could channel from, uh, street law, but I was in the zone that day. So Jeremy Irons does this thing where he, where he it's in Italy, and he's an Italian guy, and so the assumption is that we're watching him speak in Italian, but it's in English for the benefit of the viewer. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 like when we're watching Star Wars, and Star Wars they actually do subtitles and people, but uh, you know, there's just you assume that he's speaking Italian, but also I imagine you're letting him improv a little bit. If you're an 83 year old man, like Ridley Scott, and you're making 10 movies a year still, you know, you might be playing it a little loosey goosey and it shows because he starts talking and he's just like, we were uh, going to a uh, over here to do this. And it was a, uh, how you say, ah, yes. And then as if he was a English as a second language, Italian man, trying to speak English and forgetting the term. He was just saying, it, it was the weirdest thing, but it doesn't matter because that's the kind of choice that is perfectly at home in a movie like House of Gucci. Uh, the fact that every accent, completely different, although from the videos that I've seen, and credit to, to Guy for pointing it out, I said Gaga was doing Russian, and he said, yeah, but that lady actually sounds like this. And so I watched a video of Mama Gucci, and yeah, you know what? And who am I to doubt Gaga? I should have known. I should have known. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of weird choices, and there's editing snafus. Like one point, Jared Leto's character takes a gigantic drag off of a cigarette and inhales deeply, and it's like focused on. Like it's it's an acting choice that they really linger on of him angrily ripping the cigarette and then unloading but in the edit they lost whatever part of his unloading included the exhale of the smoke and so for like five minutes it, you know if 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 you're prone to be distracted <laughs> by this sort of thing like i kind of am i was like when is he gonna exhale this he's gonna like is his body just perfectly absorbing smoke but in the moment that was an enhancement to things and not a detractor. And I can't explain it, but if you see it, you will understand. There was a part where Gaga Gucci, <laughs> where Gaga Gucci uh, lipsticks her phone number on the windshield of like a Vespa sort of thing that um, Adam Driver is, is driving. And uh, she writes it on one side. And then when we cut to the other side, it's just like a totally different number. And like little snafus like that, but at the same time, so much charm, so much charm. I love it. It's really an awesome movie. And even though I criticized it for being too long, I honestly didn't feel the length. Uh, and, and it was like a one peer. And yeah, I, I typically am good about peeing during a movie because I go so much before. But lately I've been a little uh, having to pee during the movie a little bit. And Gucci was a one peer. It, it ended up happening. Um... Although, Nightmare Alley, of a similar length, but no peer. 
because I'll tell you what, folks, I was fucking riveted. Holy hell. Uh, Nightmare Alley is... It's not a remake. It was already made in 1947 in a film that's currently on Criterion Channel. It's quite good, and you should watch. I watched it before the new Nightmare Alley, and it was definitely... It enhanced my experience. Um, but that was an adaptation of a book, and so Guillermo del Toro's new movie... I, you know, it's weird. I've been saying Guillermo del Toro my whole life, and I still just marble mouth it. I don't know why. It's it's a tongue shape I can't do, but I'm going to get it. And um, this is a new adaptation of the book that it was based on. So I don't want to call it a remake, but I want to call it Guillermo del Toro's version of Nightmare Alley. And it's a really good story, and oh my god, I, I just, I was so wrapped up in this movie. It's such a cozy movie to be in, despite being, like, pretty, pretty fucked up. But it's a slow burn. It really takes its time. It definitely relishes performance and mood. Um, it, it almost feels like a new level for Del Toro, in that it's not as aggressive about style as something like Shape of Water was, which this is not at all. A I think that movie is perfect. With that one best picture, I could have shit my pants ten times because that was that was never going to happen, and then it happened and it was correct. But uh, I would say Nightmare Alley is not quite where Shape of Water is, but it is a new development in his direction because it, it is very subdued and muted in terms of like... Maybe maybe I'm misspeaking because Pan's Labyrinth. Now that I think about it, you know, sort of does, uh, you know, it it has his flair for sudden hyperviolence and gruesome imagery in the mix of like a smoky fable. But um, I guess the circus aesthetic is very suiting to what Del Toro does. So I guess there's more opportunity to organically insert that stuff into the story. Maybe that's more what I mean to say. And, uh, but man, oh man, he takes every opportunity and it is gruesome and all that. But, uh, anyone who knows me knows I love Kate Blanchett and she gives a grand slam performance in this. And, and it's, once again, it's a grand slam when, when a line drive to second would, would suffice, but that's why we love her. She goes to a hundred when we only needed 75, you know, she's, uh, but she's Kate Blanchett and that's what she does. And, uh, her and Bradley Cooper just kind of chewing scenery together is quite a delight. Uh, but across the board, great performances. Just a really, really, really inviting movie that's also, like, ooky and gross and filthy. It's it's a movie about a con man, and it gets dirty. But it also has that, that charm of the era. Uh, there's so many shots of the way that this particular circus midway looks that stick in my head because neon lights are sort of involved, but not in like a, you know, a Spencer's Gifts kind of way or you know, John, John Wick kind of thing. It's, it's all very natural and it feels very real. And the more and more I sit on it thematically, I, I think it gets at a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, watching the 1940s one, it's really about this, uh, you know, just a con man who's, who's conning people and, and living his life and going through it. And it's kind of uh, extrapolated upon more in Nightmare Alley into some father issues. It was credit to Jenna. She pointed that out to me and it clicked. And it's a... Uh, I'm very curious to see... Like, I, I immediately bought the, the book on my nook with the intention of reading it because I'm very curious to see what elements of the Del Toro version were introduced by Del Toro, 
or if they were reintroduced because they were excised from the book to create what was in the 40s. Because the 40s one, you know, obviously there's just different different styles of, uh, uh, not styles, different, uh, different tastes as to what is appropriate or not. Um, I have a feeling a lot of people are going to shit on this other movie I saw that I really loved called Encounter. Uh, Riz Ahmed is, uh, he's our lead. Uh, see, I don't want to say too much because I, I wrote it in my review that, that this, it feels like a movie that based on its ad campaign is trying to protect you from a spoiler because the ad campaign is not at all representative of what the movie is. And I think that that's on purpose, but it's one of those movies that you can't really talk about without spoiling what this thing is. I'm, I'm not going to spoil here. Don't worry. But, um, it's the kind of thing like it was, you won't want to read my review if, if you don't want this aspect spoiled, but I also don't think that this aspect, uh, would, would damage your viewing of the movie because it's one of those movies that advert, you know, press to, to, to print there's a little bit of subterfuge there, but as soon as the movie starts, there's really no secrets as to what is, you know, what's really going on. It's pretty clear. And I think it makes it pretty plain, but I'm not going to get into that. I will keep it spoiler free here. If you think that that's a spoiler, but I also think that because it's sort of marketed into being something that can be spoiled, that that leads to some of the disappointment that I've been seeing in the response to it. But I think that everybody will agree. Now I really enjoyed the movie, um, I think I just really vibed with what it ultimately turned out to be, which was a strong genre exercise with really exceptional performances. And you, you expect that from Riz Ahmed, but, uh, I have to look them up and, oh my God, if you thought I was fucking up names before, I am about to completely blow it because Encounter stars Riz Ahmed and he's sort of road tripping with his two young sons. And these two kids are unfucking believable. It's some of the most realistic. Like, like a kid in a movie, either always plays as too cute or too savvy to be a believable kid. And these kids were very cute and savvy enough, but like they really captured what it was like to be a kid. It's like it's one of those kid performances where you feel so bad, where you're like, he's so real that this has got to be fucking him up in some way. This is ruining him, right? Like, like when I was like when Dakota Fanning was little and she was great. I remember always being like, man, she's good, but this kid seems like a genius. Like she doesn't feel, you know, she felt like a real kid in the movies as, as much as one could be, but it's, it's inherent to child stars where you're like, man, you know, and so these kids though, oh man, here it goes. I'm going to blow these names. Lucian River Shawa. Uh, he's plays the older of the two kids and the younger one is Aditya Gadada. Um, insanely believable as brothers insanely believable as the sons of their father and then the arcs that this trio go through as a trio as well as as individuals are all pretty profound for what's a relatively short and quick you know quickly paced thriller movie uh but these kids got me there and they just they didn't feel like kids being paid to be in a movie. They felt real. I was very impressed. Two of the best performances of the year. And they're from kids that I've never heard of who probably, yeah. Okay. The second one, his only movie. Oh, the other guy, he's, he's been in a lot of stuff though. Oh, he's been in three things, but like small shit. And this is a really, really big performance. And so even if you uh, don't like the movie, which I totally get, uh, 
I think it's one that you should really see. Like, could be on my end of year. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Maybe I just had a good time watching it. We'll see. Should I do another one? Um, West Side Story was good. I wasn't as like blown away by it as a lot of people are. I mean, I was I was actually sufficiently blown away. But West Side Story as a text is just really awesome, and the original West Side Story adaptation is like probably the best movie musical ever. So if anyone's gonna knock on that door, if anyone's gonna fly that close to the sun, it's got to be Spielberg, and he's always wanted to do a musical. And uh, I think he flew as close to the sun as possible without burning his wings. He he pulled it off. Um, there are changes to the order of things and who sings things that I honestly want to want to revisit the old one before I touch upon that too deeply. But there are things different about it that that I you know I don't remember the older one well enough to to comment on it. But I don't know. Neither here nor there. The the my big takeaway from the film is that Steven Spielberg can direct a musical, should direct more musicals, and uh, you know I really did a lot of cool stuff in terms of of bridging that gap between cinema and musical because one of the the herculean efforts that theater actors put out is that you know there's no takes there's no cuts you just kind of have to do it straight through for better or worse the best that you can as close to the exact same every time that you can and oftentimes this involves physical feats such as climbing on fire escapes and dancing in the streets or if you're a newsie pushing a broom to the rhythm and these things are are physically taxing and part of the fun of going to theater is watching that high wire act be pulled off you know like i think that's an inherent part to theater and so when you adapt something to a movie you have to figure out a way to hold on to that a little bit without you know doing a one take musical which i don't know it might be kind of cool but probably end up being gimmicky and so filmmakers have always been challenged with with bridging that gap with you know trying to figure out that best way to say there's a reason for this to be a movie, but we still want to make sure that it's gives you that theatrical experience, but without just filming a play. And I think that it's been pulled off, I would say, with West Side Story, uh, the original one, and Chicago are two instances where I think it's pulled off pretty cleanly. And I think it's pretty clean here. Um, there's a couple points where I, I didn't get the choices, but like the choices that really, really, really work visually are some of the best I've seen. And I think actually push forward what can what can be done uh, in in adapting stage to screen and finding cinema where you couldn't on the stage, but without losing that performance aspect and credit to in the heights earlier this year i think that uh chu did did a wonderful job in that regard as well but uh yeah west side story was good uh, i've been singing officer krupke and tonight tonight in my head when i'm trying to fall asleep and it's been a nightmare but also i can't really complain because it's good stuff and um i i quite literally my brain just had my mouth almost say r.i.p steven soderbergh and that's not correct. It's Stephen Sondheim, because he's related to West Side Story. Um, should I do one more? Can I do one more? I watched... Okay. Take a little water. I watched The Scary of 61st. I think the embargo is up on that now, and I can talk about it. It's a weird-ass movie. Um, written and directed by Dasha Nekrasova of the Red Scare podcast and Succession. 
And it's just like a crazy, like, mumblecore kind of like... It's weird, like, there's like a genre of throwback to something like Possession, but it's also, you know, like a... Like a tiny furniture sort of thing going on, like Francis Ha sort of thing going on in there. Um, but it's weird. It like all works. And even though I constantly felt like the movie was like rolling its eyes at me, um, I think that might be intended. I don't know. I, I kind of like its prankish nature, but I don't understand what terms to take it on. But I've listened to Red Scare, and I, I think that that's sort of that the uh, the flavor that, that is intended to be taken. And applying it to horror and horror that is like darkly funny uh really really works well and it is really funny i laughed out loud a couple times it is genuinely unsettling and and like there's some acting choices that are questionable to bad that i think are purposefully so and might not be but i'll never be able to meet it on its own terms to find out and that's maybe the point i don't know but it's really enjoyable even just taken as like a good little horror film that's kind of funny you should check it out uh, the scary of 61st i think that's everything i think i think we're out of time here uh once again thank you to Brandon Kramer for donating his time to the show and talking about his movie. Uh, you should be able to see the first step in the near future, so stay tuned. Definitely boost it when it happens. Um, good, good, good-ass movie. Fun, fun, fun stuff. So, at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things, you can check out the Movie John Podcast Network. Uh, you can check out scullyvision.com. And uh, I think that is everything i've got to say thank you for listening fuck your mothers